and welcome to episode 21 of the Help Side Basketball Coaching and Analytics Podcast. My name is John Jansen. I'm your host. I'm the head men's basketball coach at La Sierra University located in Riverside, California. And we are here still stuck in quarantine and not really sure what the future holds yet, but things are starting to look up a little bit in the world of sports. Uh, we had golf over the weekend. Uh, soccer started again. So Things are starting to happen, which is exciting. I'm still a little pessimistic about the season happening in in all sports, but it's it's looking like people are trying. So anyway, today we have a lot to talk about. Uh, I know it's been a couple months since I've been on, but I was going to pod and then the Jordan thing started and I just decided to wait until after the Jordan was over before I came back on. So first thing we're going to talk about is the is an idea I have for sports with with COVID in a COVID world. Uh, we're going to talk about the Jordan documentary, as I said. In the analytics section, we're going to talk about helping your players get recruited and uh, what goes into showing your best self when you're trying to get your players recruited and and, and helping them with that. And in the strategy session, we're going to be talking about twist screens. And I don't know if that's a a term everybody uses, but that's a term I use. So we'll get into that in a little bit. So the first thing I want to talk about is COVID-19 testing and uh, idea that I came up with. And I, I coach at a small school and we have a smaller campus. And I think this is this idea I have works perfectly at our school, which is probably why I came up with it. And I think it can work at some other schools, but there would need to be some adjustments made. So our school is surrounded by fences on all sides. It's a a large campus, but it's surrounded by fences. So I'm assuming that and hoping that by September or whenever they decide to bring students back, that there is uh, testing more readily available. I mean, it's already available. Uh, It's not super easy. I mean, you can go somewhere, you can go to a clinic, you can go to a doctor's office and get tested. But I'm hoping that by September there are going to be enough tests that it's going to be easy to test people. So I, I feel like you can see where I'm going with this here. What we would do is, or what they would do is, you have all your student athletes that come to campus. They would take a test when they get on campus, require all your athletes to live in the dorms or live on campus and you know, some places have on-campus apartments, but you require everyone to live on campus and they would get tested when they come on campus. And they would be encouraged not to leave campus, and you know maybe they you know maybe the 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 school would say, "Okay, you can leave campus once a week or twice a week or something like that, but in general, most students stay on campus most of the time, so they get tested, they come on campus, they stay on campus for a majority of the time, and so you know so what 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 you would do is the school would pay to have tests at the gate, and you would have the tests. Right when you got there, you wait for your results. It takes 10, 15 minutes, and then you're allowed on campus. And you're not allowed on campus until you receive a test, a negative test, that you're, you don't have coronavirus. And so then, basically, the only people you're testing are people that go home every night. So all the students would stay on campus. So basically, it would just be coaches, you know, athletic department people, dining hall people, you know, just the quote-unquote essential workers that are needed on campus on a daily basis maintenance people, etc. So, you know, at a school like ours, that's pretty small that I would say that's probably less than 50 people a day. I mean, I'd say significantly less than 50 people a day, maybe 20 to 30. And if coronavirus tests are widely available at that point, and cheap enough, you know, I think it's a viable option to just test the people that leave campus every day before they come off. And then, you know, when you step onto that campus, that you're in a coronavirus-free environment. So there wouldn't be any rules about hanging out, touching, you know, contact sports, etc. Because you know once you're inside the safety of the campus that no one has coronavirus because the people are being tested on a daily basis. And I think it's a, it's a really viable solution. And, you know, the, the biggest problem would be campuses that are more open or, you know, don't have fences around them. And I just think that would require maybe hiring more security, um, putting up temporary fences during this, 
you know, this time that you could take down in, 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 a, in a little bit. And, you know, just talking to your athletes about it and saying, you know, the only way the season is going to work is if we're, we're coronavirus negative. And so if you guys sneak off campus and you somehow get it, then it's going to ruin it for everybody. So I think they would be on board with that because the other option is there's no sports. And I, and, and, and I think that's an easy choice. So I think it's a viable option if, like I said, the coronavirus testing becomes you know, almost over the counter. And, I, and I'm hoping that that's going to be the case sometime soon because I think it will solve a lot of problems. You know, if you can just go easily get tested, then you can start bringing crowds back to games and stuff like that because you just, you know, have testing when you get there and you add it into the price of admission or whatever, whatever it is that has to be done. If coronavirus testing before a vaccine is, becomes widely available, it make, make things a lot easier. It was just something I came up with when I was sitting around. Oh, and there's another uh, caveat to that too. You know, to take it a step further, if you could have some of your coaches or, you know, employees stay on campus possibly even a couple nights a week, it cuts down on how many tests you would have. You know, maybe they stay in a dorm or maybe there's other housing that's kind of on campus but away from other people. And maybe they go home two nights a week during the week and you're cutting down on, you know, a bunch of tests for, for, for all those coaches that can stay on campus for a couple nights a week. And then on the weekend or whatever, or a couple nights a week, they go home and, and then they just get tested again when they come back. So I was just thinking that from an expense, you know, and an availability of, of just the amount of tests that you would need. So maybe it's not a feasible thing, but it's an idea. And I think that, you know, all of us are kind of just brainstorming stuff on, on how we can try to beat this thing and get the, get these seasons going. I want to switch gears to the Jordan documentary now. And look, there's a lot to talk about. I mean, it was really good. It was very, you know, it was really entertaining. You got to see a lot of behind the scenes stuff, which was awesome in the locker room. You always want to see what goes on in the locker room when they're just guys are just hanging out on the bus, on the plane, just having a good time and just being regular people. And that's what you got to see. And then even some of the camera shots. I mean, they're in the huddle during the NBA finals. I mean, it's crazy. And this footage has just been sitting there for 20, 30 years. It's crazy. It's crazy to think that this footage has just been there this whole time. And this thing has never been put together until now. So it was great. So I'm going to go through a few of the guys uh, that I wrote down and I wrote down some notes and just kind of what I perceived them. And the first guy I want to start off with is Scottie Pippen. And it's very interesting how he just goes from hero to goat throughout this documentary. And he's just the unsung hero and he does I mean, he's, he was a great player, and in the documentary, people talked about him possibly being the second best player in the NBA, and he'll never get that kind of, he'll never be seen that way because he was second fiddle to possibly the greatest of all time. So let's pretend he's like the four, the 30th best player of all time, and I'm not saying he is, I'm just throwing it out there, and he's playing with the best player of all time on his team. No one's going to see him for what he was because he couldn't do as much because Michael Jordan was doing so much. And so, you know, he really, really sacrificed for the good of winning championships. So I want to talk about the contract that he signed and everyone says it's the worst deal in sports and he was cheated and blah, blah, blah. I completely disagree. So when you sign a contract with an NBA team, it's fully guaranteed. Same with baseball. Football's the one that's not. So with baseball, with football, I understand renegotiating your contract before it's over. But with basketball, both sides are gambling, okay? So the Bulls are gambling that he will be better than the money they're willing to spend on him, or as good as, or better. And he's gambling that he could possibly get hurt, and then he still gets his money. So it just happened that in this case he ended up becoming so good that his his value was way more than the money he was earning. But had he gotten hurt early in his career and never played or fizzled out, or let's pretend he wasn't even ends up not being a good player, 
he would still get all of that money. So the Bulls were taking a huge gamble by signing him to this huge contract at that time. And even though on a yearly basis, it wasn't that much money, back then it was a lot of money. And so the, the Bulls took this huge risk. I think it was a seven-year deal or something like that. And they were gambling that he would be better than the contract. And he was gambling that maybe he wouldn't be or maybe he would get hurt or whatever the case may be or taking the security. And so, you know, you can go through the history of, sports like basketball and, and baseball, and you can see these mega contracts where guys have got hurt or they weren't good enough, and people just rag on the teams, oh, what a terrible contract that was, what a terrible contract that was. But those guys still got that money. And so this is an instance where it worked the other way, and the team actually kind of won on on the deal because he ended up being worth more than than he got. So... Both teams took a risk. Both teams agreed to a contract. He could have signed a four-year contract, a three-year contract. You know, Jerry Reinsdorf talked about it, that he thought the contract was too long. But Scottie Pippen wanted the money. He wanted the security. So when you take that risk and when you sign that contract, you that's what you get. And, I, and, I, and I'm sorry, but I, I don't feel bad for him because he chose that. Gambling that he might get hurt and he would still get that money. So... When, when everyone, you know, sees that he's this, you know, poor guy, and then when he doesn't want to play in, in the 98 year because he's not making enough money, I mean, he signed the contract. So I think he was being selfish. And then, you know, later in the documentary, they go into the part where, you know, when Jordan wasn't there and he didn't, he didn't get the final shot and he sat out. And to be honest, I disagree with that too because he's not the coach. And the coach put together a play that he thought it would work and the thought that was the best player or the best play for the team in that scenario. And it wasn't to him. And that's life. And the coach, you have to assume, has knows a little bit more than the players. You know, the players are in the moment. The players have egos. And yeah, and Scottie, Scottie Pippen was probably the best player on the floor. But that doesn't mean he was the best shooter on the floor. And, you know, if if the guy that that subbed in for Pippen because he refused to play had thrown the ball away and they lost the game, Pippen would be a massive goat in this scenario. And you see the guys after the game aren't even happy because, you know, Scottie Pippen's basically being a baby because he didn't get the ball. But he was involved in the play. I mean, he, he's passing the ball. And that's a really important part. And just because you don't get to be the hero and shoot the shot, the guy who passes the ball is very important. Because, again, like I said, if he had thrown that away and they go on to lose that game, then, you know, you everyone would look right at Scottie Pippen and say, well, you got to suck it up and do it. And it worked out for him because they won and Kukoc made the shot. But, man, I mean, what was going to happen? Let's pretend Kukoc missed the shot. Was he going to not play in overtime too? I mean, what? how far was he going to take this, this pouting and this pissed off? Is he going to go, all right, now, see, I showed you. And then what, go try to win the game for him so he can, he can prove that he was the guy? I mean, it just it doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's, it's a really bad look. And, you know, as, as good as, as Pippen was, it's, it, you know, it sucks that they put these moments on there. And, you know, they talked about it, you know, since the documentary, Pippen's been upset because it had nothing to do with Michael Jordan. There was no reason for it to be in the documentary when he was off playing baseball. But especially something that specific. But... It was on there, and, and it was just a bad look. And I feel bad for Scotty for that, but, you know, he did it himself. And everyone preaches team, and everybody preaches championships. But, you know, I, if you want to preach team, okay. Are you willing to sit on the bench and be the best cheerleader and play zero minutes and score zero points if your team wins every game? Because you could take it that far and then see what a real teammate you are. Because if you are, you'd be happy because you're, you're, you win a championship. So... I know that's that's like a taking to the to the most extreme sense, but you know something like that does not make you a good teammate. The next guy I want to talk about is Dennis Rodman. You know I've seen the thirty for thirty. If you haven't, you should go watch it immediately. It's amazing. He he's so inspiring. You know, playing in college and just happy to be there, and and just you know the way he celebrates after every bucket because he just didn't think he you know he's just so excited that he scores a basket. That he just cheers and goes nuts. I just love it. And he plays with so much passion. And he's willing to give his body. I mean, even the documentary, he was in the he was in, you know, he's working out. He's like, let's go get our noses broken. Let's get on the floor. Let's just go after it. And just, I mean, it fired me up. I wanted to go out and 
get some shots up or play or something. You know, it's he's great. And, you know, he has his other his this other life. And it's it's so interesting because he's such a disciplined player and he plays so hard and then he leaves the court and he turns into a wild man. It's just it's it's crazy. And, you know, but he, he, he always did his job, you know, whatever he did, he came back and he did his job. And obviously we all just saw the NWO thing where he went and wrestled with Hulk Hogan and had girls and during the NBA finals. And it's crazy. Now, again, we're talking about a time where, you know, they went to a shoot around and Michael Jordan's on the court talking about how he just drank two beers and smoked a cigar. And now they're at shoot around. So this was this kind of behavior was much more accepted back then. But, I mean, he took it to an extreme. I mean, look, you don't know what guys are doing in their day off. I mean, we saw Michael Jordan go play golf on his day off. You know, when you have a day off, and and obviously he missed a practice, so it wasn't a day off, which I think is much worse. But who knows what these guys do, you know? I'm sure Jordan went to casinos sometimes. Like, we, you know, early in the documentary, they talked about the time he went to the casino. I mean, guys are probably getting wild or partying or, or gambling or doing whatever they want. It's just that he did his in a more public space at that time. Because now if you did it, someone's going to take a picture of you. It's going to be all over social media. But back then, you could get away with doing stuff like that unless you're on WWE and you're on TV. And then everybody sees it and it becomes this huge deal because no one's seeing other people doing that stuff. So he seemed like the only one because social media didn't catch everybody you know, doing this kind of stuff. I wish they had shown... Phil Jackson talking to him when he got back or what kind of discipline disciplinary measures there were or you know they kind of talked about him but when he got back there was no conversation between Phil and him or the team and him like did did Michael Jordan go you know what are you doing are you, did he rag on me I mean what 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 did these guys say to him when he came back and what did Phil say I mean they're in the middle of the or they're what one or two games in the NBA finals and this guy takes off and you see him drinking and smoking on TV with girls and he misses a practice. I want to know what Phil Jackson said to him. You know, he talked to the team and said, you know, we got whoever we got, blah, blah, blah. But I'd like to know if he just glossed over it and didn't even didn't even mention it or, or what. And they didn't show it, but that's okay. Um, but it would have been really interesting to know. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is Steve Kerr. And Steve Kerr has just become an overnight sensation, I would assume. Uh, he was great in his few moments there in episode nine, I believe it was. And, you know, he was self-deprecating. You know, he made the funny comment that no one recruited him and no one, no girls liked him. And it was the same thing. And that was funny. Now I'm confused a little bit how he said no one was recruiting him. And then he ended up on a scholarship to university of Arizona. And, you know, I know there was less colleges back then, but university of Arizona was still a, a very, you know, it was in the pack 10 it was a really good school. You know, Lute Olson was there, and I'm, I'm sure they were a winning program. And, and for him to go there, obviously, it's hard for me to believe that he went from no one recruiting him to University of Arizona scholarship. And now maybe he was talking about, you know, his first three years and maybe he had a growth spurt or something and something. I don't know. But it's hard for me to imagine that he went from nothing to, to that kind of scholarship. But And then, of course, the next funny part was, you know, when Michael Jordan says he'll be ready and then he talks about how he yelled it back and that was funny too. And then they show the clip and he really was yelling it back. And uh, that was great. And then, of course, at the uh, at the parade when he, he tells the story of, you know, Michael telling him to give the ball to him and stuff. And it was great. It was really funny. And he was really he was really good and humble in it and self-deprecating. And I thought he was he was really he was really good. And you feel good for a guy like that. You know, they went to the story about his dad and how his dad got shot and Man, it was it was sad, you know. I mean, and then every time he hears a national anthem, he thinks about his dad, and and his dad was out there, you know, helping helping trying to bridge things between countries at war, and you know, it's it's really sad, and I feel bad for him that he didn't get to see, you know, that I feel bad for Steve that his dad didn't get to see him play because I know for Steve it would have probably meant a ton to him because his dad loved basketball and and seemed like he was a really good guy, and so it's it's really it's really sad. But, you know, Steve Kerr did a great job in that. And as you know from this, I'm not a huge Steve Kerr guy, um, but he, he, he was really good in, in the documentary. And then last but not least, Michael Jordan, of course. I mean, he was great. You know, it's, it's so funny, and I don't want to get too much into revisionist history, but 
not until basically the last episode did Michael Jordan miss any shots. And I was it's funny because I always think that the people who love Jordan, they say they watch every game. Well, they didn't because every game wasn't on TV. There was no there was no package. There was no NBA ticket. You basically watched your home team and then you know, there's a couple. There was like one TNT game and then like one weekend game. And those were the nationally televised games. And I'm sure the Bulls were on there a lot. But people who say they watched Jordan's every game, they're lying. Unless they lived in Chicago. And then even playoff games weren't even televised. You know, I, I remember growing up and that wasn't even, you know, in the 80s. And I just remember you, you would be like, wow, why isn't this game on TV? And they just weren't because there was lots of playoff games going on, especially early in the playoffs. And, and because there wasn't that many nationally televised games, they just didn't have them. And so... So when people say they watch every one of Jordan's games, it's not true. And then what happens is they turn into Sports Center every night, and all you see is Jordan making every single shot. And so you go, "Wow, this guy's amazing because he never misses a shot in his highlights." And I was thinking about that when I started watching the documentary. And in like episode, I don't know, one of the early ones, two, three, whatever, he takes a shot behind the backboard, just messing around. He misses it. I was like, "Wow, he missed a shot in this documentary." And I don't think he missed another shot until maybe episode eight, they might've shown him missing one or two. And then in the last, in the last episode, of course, they showed him missing a couple shots against Utah there. And, uh, before he hit those, those last couple. So, you know, you, we see him as this legendary figure, but you know, he missed shots too. I mean, early in the documentary, they talked about that 63 point game and they went through game one and game two when he had these two massive games against, against the uh, Celtics and then he goes, and then they go, yeah, and they got swept, and then game three was nine for 19. And it's like, okay, so why didn't you show that? Because we're only showing the good stuff, I see. Okay. And I actually went back and watched the 63-point game. The competition is so bad. I mean, the Bulls center looks like a beer-swigging guy from the, from the Midwest. I mean, he has a pot belly. He can barely run up and down the floor. I mean, it's just terrible, terrible basketball. And it's it's really hard for me to talk about these iconic people when you see how bad the competition was. Jordan 63, I mean, even the Celtics players are terrible. I mean, it's just horrible basketball. No one guards anybody. And I, I, it's, it's just, it's, it's hard to talk about. Anyway, you know, some of the things that Jordan said in the documentary were amazing. His competitive spirit how he just took stuff and said, oh, okay, okay, that's it. That's that's what's going to trigger me. And, you know, I consider myself one of the most competitive people there is. And it has nothing to do with talent. And I and I think uh, it was Jeff Van Gundy who came out and he said, you know, J.J. Redick is one of the most competitive people I've ever met. You know, they talk about Jordan and Kobe with these killer instincts. Well, yeah, but they're also really good. You can be really competitive and be terrible at sports and be, and still be the most competitive person in the world but you just probably lose a lot more. So just because, you know, Jordan and Kobe were like some of the best players ever doesn't mean that they're more competitive than other people. And I mean, they are, but not more than everybody, you know? And so, you know, I'm psychotically competitive and I look for ways to compete on a daily basis, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, I, I really felt validated by some of the things that that he said, you know, I used to do the same thing. And for me, you know, especially in my twenties, if a guy showed up at the gym with his girl, he was my target. And I didn't want to just beat him. I wanted to embarrass him so badly that she couldn't date him anymore. And that's the truth. I mean, that's the way I felt. I wanted to go embarrass this guy. So she couldn't even look at him like, like he struck out in softball or something. You know, that's, that's the mentality I had. I wanted to embarrass the guy so bad that his girlfriend would break up with him. That was my mentality. And, you know, I, w- I played professionally. I played overseas. So I could do that to some people, especially in, you know, I played in some really high-level men's leagues, but that didn't matter. I was coming for guys. And and then another thing that he talked about, you know, how you know how he got into it with Steve Kerr and he was a really tough teammate. Man, I'm a tough teammate. You know, I'm a tough coach and I'm a tough teammate because I want to win every game. And I don't care if I score zero points. I really don't. I just want to win. And I know that me scoring points a lot of times will help us win. But I also, you know, especially as I got into coaching, realized the importance of your teammates being 
having a positive mental freedom of mind while they're playing. And I would, you know, a lot of times I'll pass up shots to get other guys involved. So I, so I know that they're engaged in the game and they'll play defense. And, and, and so I, I care about winning the most. And I played tennis in high school. I was the best player in the high school. And, uh, Back then, they required everyone to play singles and doubles in your in your matches, and so I was paired up with the second best player at the school, and it really wasn't that close. And I was really hard on him. I mean, I rode him every day because I wanted him to come up to my level. I didn't want to lose because this guy wasn't as good as I was, and I rode him, and and he was a he was a very passive person, and he was quiet. And he was talented, but he, he didn't have that, that killer instinct that I had. And I was trying to get that into him. And, and because I, you know, I, I wanted to win every one of my matches and, and I was, and I had to play, I had to play doubles with somebody and I would just ride him and ride him and ride him just like Jordan was talking about. And I, and that's why I felt validated with it. And, you know, talking about that fight with Michael Jordan one day in a match, he took a ball and hit it at me as hard as he could because he was tired of me ragging on him. And, and I deserved it. There's no doubt about it because I wanted him to be better and he just wasn't. And, you know, and that was, to me, that was the price of, of success and the price of being the best we could. And we ended up, we were, we were good, but I thought we could be better. And I, and I hated when we lost because usually, you know, the other teams would just hit the ball to him more. And, you know, if I saw him, I, I think we would be friendly. I think it would probably be water under the bridge because, I mean, it wasn't 24-7. But when we got into matches, I wanted him to have the fire that I had. And, you know, we got into it. And so, you know, when I see Jordan talk about this and talk about how he was, you know, so hard on his teammates because he was there to win. And if you weren't at his level, then he was going to bring you up or he's going to rag on you. And now, I'm not talking about his 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 the way he spoke about Scott Burrell and, and all that, because that's, he bullied that guy. I wasn't bullying. I'm sure I was negative a lot, but I was trying to get him to fight and, and play. And I was the same in basketball. And, and it's, and it's funny because, you know, I'll go out and play, you know, at a local gym or 24, or I'll go, you know, even our, our campus has open gym for students. I'll go out there and get some exercise and some of these kids, you know, they're terrible. And they come in, they're thinking, okay, I want to get some shots up. You know, I want to play some open open gym and get some shots up. Well, not on my team because you you come on my team, you start jacking the ball, I'm going to be in you because there's 25, 30 guys. You lose one game, you're sitting out for an hour. And I don't want to do that. And so, I mean, I hate myself for it, but I can't help it because I want to win so bad. And I'll just, I'll, I'll be like, I'll just start getting mad at these kids who are students. It's, it's ridiculous. But it's just this competitive nature and this will that I have to win. And, and I think, you know, as, as a, it's funny because the older I get, I feel like the window's closing on, you know, on me. And so I want to win everything I can before I no longer have kind of the control, you know, in basketball, one player has so much control. And so the older I get, the less, the less amount of time I have where I can still control the outcome of the game. And so I probably get more angry now because I, I just want to win every game. Some guys, you know, but I, I guarantee guys would rather play with me than against me because they know I'm going to play hard. And it's funny. I've always thought about, you know, how they always say NBA guys take it to another level in the playoffs. I don't even know if I have that because I, I always play hard. And I don't care if it's City Gym and City Gym. I can't believe I just named my local gym. Uh, it doesn't matter where I am. I, I don't have the go half speed mode. And maybe it's because I'm not super athletic and, and talented, you know, where I can still go half speed and kill everybody. But when I'm playing, I'm there to, I'm there to kill people. And that's just the, the way I have, the way I am. And, and, you know, if, if we're up eight zero, I want to win 11 zero, you know, I don't want to win 11, 11 five. I don't want to win 11 seven. I want to step on their throats and I want to let them know they will never beat us. I mean, that's just the way it is. And when I see Michael Jordan talk, it just makes me it just it it seriously it validates me and and I know I'm 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 going long on this but you know the competitive fire he has I just I love it it, it it's inspiring to me and you know something some things that have occurred occurred in in the last couple of days I'm going to get to right now before we move on first of all Jay Billis came out with a video on YouTube I highly recommend you check it out talking about how in the whole world everyone everything gets better as the years go on but somehow 
90s and 80s basketball is somehow the best ever. And he, he just talks about, you know, oh, so so Patrick Mahomes couldn't play in the 80s. No, no one ever says that. Mike Trout couldn't bat against an old school pitcher. No, no one ever says that. But all of a sudden, these guys today couldn't compete tw- with the guys 20 years ago. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And if you take the time to actually watch a full game, you will see. It, I watched this. I told you guys. I watched this game with Jordan where he scored 63. And Orlando Woolridge was 6'8", 240. And on this court, he looked like a monster because everybody was so skinny and pathetic. And he was killing, and he's scoring like 24. And, and Orlando Woolridge was not known throughout his career as this like big-time player, but he looks like a monster compared to these guys because he was one of the few guys that actually you know worked out and was big. And you talk about LeBron James – you know, Woolridge couldn't shoot outside 15, 18 feet because, you know, at that time you were a post player when you're 6'8". I mean, Michael Jordan is 6'8", 260, 270, and he's playing point guard right now for the Lakers at age 35. I mean, that shows you how the game is, how, how players have evolved and how dominant LeBron James is. I mean, he was ta- he's the same height, he weighs more, yet he's running the point, he can shoot, I mean, he can do literally everything, and... You're, I mean, it would be a joke out there. I think I think LeBron – look, I, I said I wasn't going to get into a LeBron debate, but I think LeBron would go into those days and just kill everybody and average 45 a game. Seriously. I mean, the, I mean, LeBron has spent his career out-muscling people, and you're talking about guys who literally never touched a weight in their whole life. I mean, it, and now he's playing against guys who work out religiously. So he would go back there and absolutely destroy those guys. Okay. That's it. That's it with my LeBron talk. So let's move on now to uh, the analytics section, and I want to talk about helping your players get recruited. And you know, it's recruiting season for me right now, and I get tons of emails every day, and I go through them. I you know, I I, I give them all a couple minutes of my time, and I just wanted to, you know, hopefully at some point you will be helping some players, some of your players move on to the college level. And I think there's a right way to do it, and I think there's a wrong way to do it, and because I've seen the wrong way a lot, and so, you know, if maybe this can help, you know, high school coaches, you know, middle school coaches, dads, wh- whoever, on helping their players get recruited and, and be taken seriously. And now, of course, this is talking about guys who are not already heavily recruited. I mean, obviously, if you're one of the best, then you don't need to do anything because people are going to come find you. But if you're a fringe guy or you're a guy who's trying to get exposed you know, exposure in places maybe other than where you are locally, where people may not have heard of you, then, then here's some, here's some things because there's definitely a wrong way to do it. So the first thing is to be professional. So writing an email with good grammar, with complete sentences in a professional manner is really good. Having a good email address. I I actually came across an email a couple months ago and his email address was ya boy Aaron. Y-A-B-O-Y-A-A-R-O-N. Ya boy, Aaron. And I, <laughs> and, and I just, I mean, it's crazy. And I immediately, you know, I read his profile and he, you know, he didn't speak in complete sentences. And I, and I said, hey, let me give you some advice. Change your email address and take this seriously because this is your future and this is your college basketball future. And he said, okay, coach. And he changed his email address and he re-emailed me and he wrote, well, and then, and we had a, you know, we, we talked and, and, and so, you know, he took it to heart, which is, which is nice. So you want to be professional. You want to have a good email address. You want to speak in complete sentences and you want to be honest. If, if you lie to me, I'm going to call you out and I'm probably not going to want to talk to you anymore. You know, if you tell me that you average 14 points a game, look, I go and check all the stats. I, you know, you send me highlights. I'm going to go watch them and then I'm going to go to your team's website, you know, if you're a junior college player, and I'm going to look up your real stats. And if you've lied to me, then to me, you're a liar. And now I'm not interested in you because we want good character people at our school. So if you tell me you average 14 and, and, and five, and you actually average 10 and three, well, you're probably not going to get recruited by most colleges because you're lying. If you played on the JV team, and you don't mention that and you say, man, I averaged you know, I had a guy who emailed me and said I averaged 14 and 10 and he was like 6'2 and I was like, oh my gosh, here we go. This is, this, is the, this is the guy. And I looked at him on film and he was fine. And I looked up their school and he, their college and he wasn't listed. And I went, oh no. And then 
in the far, you know, when you scroll down and find the corner that says JV team, and there he is. He's the star of the JV team, averaging 14 and 10. And it's, and maybe it's, it's a way for him to possibly get recruited, but any, any coach worth his salt is going to do their homework and see that he's lying and they see that he's on the JV team. I would rather you said, hey, I'm on the JV team, but I dominated and I think I can play at this level. And then I'd have a look at you and be like, all right, let's, let's have a look. Because just because you're on the JV team doesn't mean they're all terrible. But when you run off these stats like you played on the real team and you didn't, it, I'm just going to – you're done. You're out of there. So being honest is really important. And, you know, look, our one of our best players this past year averaged four points a game at his JC, and he was just a perfect fit for us. And so just because you don't have the, the best numbers in the world – uh, doesn't mean you're you're not someone who can get recruited. So just be honest, and and that's that's really important. The way you talk in your email is important too. Um, I recently had a player say, uh, I, w- "I really want to play overseas." He said, "I I want I need a college team because I really need want to play overseas." And to me, that's like okay, he's going to use us to try to make a good highlight tape, score as many points as he can, so he can go get a contract overseas. That doesn't. That kind of talk gets you deleted immediately. You know, I'm not interested in that. We're trying to win a championship here. And I'd love to help you get overseas, but we need to we need to try to win a championship. We need to try to win as a team. And the other thing that people say is they want to showcase their skills. That's not what we're here for. This isn't the NBA. We're here to win games. Showcasing skills sounds like you don't care about anything except showing what you can do. And, and maybe that's not true, but that's what it sounds like. And we don't, we're not here to let guys showcase skills. We're here to win games as a team. So again, how you talk in the email is just as important. The next thing is the information that you put in, in the email. Uh, some people put no information. They say, coach, I was wondering if you have any slot, slots open. If you do, email me back. I'm going to delete that. I'm not even going to email you back. I'm going to delete that because I don't have time to do that and then have you now send me this information when now we find out you're 5'6 and, and can't play so or whatever. I, I, I want the information. You're going to get two minutes of my time. Your player. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm talking to you, talking as if I'm talking to the recruit now, but you're going to get two minutes of my time. And if what you have to tell me is going to take longer than two minutes, then I'm just not going to do it. And because there's just too many emails and that's just the way it is for me personally. Again, these are just the way I do things in my opinions. So when you send me an email, I want your height, I want your weight, I want your GPA, I want your test scores, I want to know if you qualify for financial aid, I want to know what schools you went to, what you average at those schools, I want to know how many years of eligibility you have left, and then I want highlights. That's it. And, and, and you can put that all in one nice, concise paragraph. You know, if you want to tell me a little about, about yourself, about how, you know, some accomplishments you had, that's great. But I need those things because I'm not going to bring you in until I find that out. And, and like I said, I'm asking for your average. That doesn't mean you have to have a huge average. But I'd still like to know what it is. And if I have to come back to you and email you and then ask you five more questions because you didn't give me that information, it's, it's a waste of time. And then you you know you email me back three answers and now there's still now I have and it's just a it's just a huge time waste and a lot of people will just won't do it and you and we want to really streamline the process the next thing your highlight film and this is <laughs> this is and I'm sure all of the college coaches can attest if you're helping your player get recruited when you put together a highlight film two minutes three minutes five minutes it, it's okay I'm I'm, I'm only going to give you a, probably two minutes. Unless I'm in love with you, then I'll probably watch five or something like that. But, but you want to show highlights of your skills, okay? If a guy drops the ball at your feet and you lay the ball in, that's not really a highlight. That doesn't really show what you can do. All it does, does is show that you can make a layup when the ball's in your hand. Everyone can do that. So, you know, if you're a point guard, you can show yourself dribbling the ball up against pressure. You can show yourself making good quality passes, not behind the back. Not off the backboard. An alley-oop is, to me is fine. I mean, some coaches probably don't care about behind-the-back passes. I want my team to be fundamental. 
I mean, we're trying to win games here. In the NBA, they love it. But if you watch college basketball, you see very few behind-the-back passes because it's not a fundamental play. And the coaches don't want it because we're just trying to win. We're not trying to entertain. So you want to show, you if you're a shooter, making shots. You want to show, if you're a driver, driving to the hoop and scoring on good players. So these are some of the things. And for some people, it's tough if you don't play against really good competition. I immediately look at the competition so you want to show yourself playing well against good competition. If your competition's terrible, then I immediately devalue it. And of course, I'm not going to just delete you. But look, we can all score 50 points against terrible people. You know, I want to see what you can do against good players, against athletic players, against you know tall guy. You know, if if the other team's center is six one and you're scoring in the paint all the time, that doesn't really really show us a lot. So you want to show against good competition. Again, you want to show your skill set. You know, if you're not a three-point shooter and you made two for the whole year, don't put yourself on there hitting two three-pointers because it's it's kind of a lie. It's not really what you do, and you're kind of selling something that you don't really do. And I understand that you're trying to get somewhere, but again, any coach is going to take the time and redo his research, watch games, etc., and find out that you don't really don't do that, or or find out, hey, what's your what's your three-point percentage? Oh, it's oh, it's eighteen percent. But yet here you are showing me your your two makes on the season or whatever the case is. So if you can shoot the three a little bit, sure, put them on there. If you want to show yourself taking charges, playing defense, that's great. I wouldn't put it at the beginning. At the beginning, I kind of want to see what your offensive skill set is, which is knocking down shots, driving, dribble pull-ups, things things of that nature. You know, if you if you Occasionally, if you get a nice block, if you want to show your athleticism or a dunk, I mean, look, I, 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 we, we definitely are looking for athletes. So if you have some dunks on there, that's great. But we don't need, you know, 10 dunks. If you dunk the ball two or three times in different ways, maybe catch an alley-oop, that's great. Throw it on there. We want to see that you're playing above the rim. If you, if you go up and make a couple great blocks, throw it on there. That's great. We want to see that you can play above the rim and, and make defensive plays. So that stuff's all good stuff. Things that, are, that I would recommend not doing. Bank shots that are accidents. Anything that's an accident, we don't really need to see it. If you're shooting a three-pointer and you bank it in, you don't need to put it on your highlight tape because all it shows is that you missed so badly that the ball went in by accident. And that actually devalues you. So bank shots probably shouldn't go on there. Like I said, if the ball falls into your hands and you lay the ball in, doesn't really do anything for us. Crazy passes, I actually think you shouldn't have them on there you know, like behind the back and stuff like that. We don't need any instant replays. We don't need any slow motion, okay? You can cut that out. The slow motion stuff, I, I don't, I mean, some guys will show a clip and then have it replay twice in slow motion. And to me, it's, to me, what it tells me is he doesn't have that many highlights, so he's showing the same one highlight over and over to kill, you know, to make his tape longer. That's That's the way I think. And maybe that's wrong, but that's my opinion. And then, you know, Playing it over and over. If I want to see it a second time, I'll rewind. I'll watch it again. So I don't need to see it over and over. Uh, another thing now that I don't know if maybe the uh, you know the uh, the companies that are helping you make these films are doing, but now some of them have like watch this or you know they have these like bubbles that come on when you're about to make a play or he's like killing this guy or something. It, it's unnecessary stuff. It's unnecessary. It doesn't. It actually it makes you look less professional. And it's just not necessary. So to me, those are some things that can help. Um, let me make sure that I went over everything that I had written down. Oh, a big one. The next thing I want to talk about, music choice. This is another thing. I like that you guys have music on there. It's cool. It's it's fun. It makes it more entertaining. Um, I do like hearing the crowd noise sometimes. That's cool too. But if you have music, that's fine. And it, you know, it let me see, let's, lets me see what your taste of music is. The problem is some people put these just like graphic lyrics. And look, I listen to music and I know there's bad lyrics, but you're trying to impress a potential, you know, you're almost trying to get a job. And you're trying to impress a potential interviewer or boss or something like that. And these guys have this these highlights with this music that's like F this, F that, talking about women. And it's just like, what are you doing? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's It's... It's not necessary. It makes you look bad. And I'm, I actually believe it hurts your, your recruiting process because we want, again, everybody, if you ask any college coach, what do they want? High character guys. 
And if you're not only listening to that music, that's fine. You can do whatever you want on your own time. But if you're displaying that to the public, that raises some real questions. So if, again, if you're helping some of your players uh, put together these highlight films, these are some things to think about. Again, you can also add full game films to the email, but highlights is the most important. If you put a full game film, I'm probably just going to delete you. I mean, unless, of course, you're like your 6'6 or something. But I, I get 20 to 30 a day. Watching a full game film takes probably an hour just to see you score, you know, five, six, even 10 buckets. I mean, that's, that's a lot of, and look, I think it's great. I can see you play defense. I can see how you are off the ball. I can see you, you know, if you're a point guard, bring the ball up. And eventually I'm going to want to see that. But for the first impression, I don't need a first impression that's going to take an hour. I need a first impression of two to three minutes of you showing, show, you know, showing what kind of skills you have in, in athleticism and all that stuff. So, you know, the full games are fine, but not for the first you know, we can say the first date, you know, let's, let's see the highlights first. And then we'll, when we get, when we get down the process and then you can send over your, your full game and it's fine to put them both, like I said, on the email, but, um, it's really important that you have highlights. You know, I don't know how involved high school coaches are with that. I know obviously they have to get the game film, but it's something you could talk to your players about. And if you are helping in that process, you know, even just giving them the game film, you could just go over that, these kind of points with them and say, Hey, make sure you're being professional. Make sure you include these kind of information, make sure, you know, you're, you're showing yourself in a good light. And you could actually probably sit down with the player and kind of talk to him about what kind of highlights to put in. Because again, the highlight tape they make for their Instagram and for their friends and for all that, it's completely different than a highlight tape they should be making for their, for college coaches, potential college coaches. So um, that's something for them to think about for sure. Moving to the strategy session, I want to talk about uh, twist screens, and I don't know if there's a more professional name, but that's what I call them. And that's when you come up to set a screen and you jump to the other side. So it really usually happens from when t- both guys are high on the floor, like a drag screen, you know, when a, when a trailing big uh, comes across. So a lot of teams now are showing or hedging, and they're kind of taking away your pick and roll. And you know, a counter to that is to do this twist screen. So let's say I'm coming down the left side of the floor and my, and my big wants to come to the drag screen and his guy is, you know, running right behind him. And you know, from scouting, or even if you don't, that you can, you can make these adjustments in game that they're going to show or hedge real hard. And now what's that doing? It's taking away your ability for your point guard to turn the corner, to get downhill, and it's hurting your offense. So what you do is you have your big sprint to the screen, but instead of sprinting to the screen, he just takes two more big steps and jumps around to the other side. Now, if he's running hard to the screen, he should have a step or two on his man, hopefully, and that guy will not have enough time to get all the way around to the other, stop, other side and stop you from, from using that screen. And it's a simple thing, but you don't see a lot of people doing it. And I think it's really effective because you kind of take away that hedging guy or that that show guy. And now he's, you know, back a couple steps because he's just now getting there. And and your point guard has now already hopefully turned the corner on him. Now, there's definitely a potential for some illegal screens, but you just have to, you know, work on it, number one. But number two, have your guy, um, your screener just freeze. As soon as he starts to move, you got to freeze. And that's something to work on with your with your bigs or anyone who's screening. And it's hard to do in practice because, you know, we want our guys being physical. I'm not, I, I call basically zero uh, moving screens in practice because I want these guys to work on getting through it and, and get tough. But I'll tell them afterwards, I'll be like, hey, you know, that was probably going to be an illegal screen just so the guy, so the offensive guy knows because we don't want him, you know, getting those fouls in the game. But I think, you know, you can work on it and you can work on your bigs running. And if you see the point guard or the guard with the ball start to make a move, you just tell him to freeze. And if he doesn't use the screen, then it's on him because he didn't wait for it or he's not using it. And then, of course, you can get in some re-screen stuff and stuff like that, which we can talk about another day. But I think the twist is a, is a neat little thing there to open up your point guard. And I would recommend using it from, from like I said, high to high, um, both guys up top, because if you're coming from the bottom, then the defender is almost right underneath him. 
And so if you try to switch sides the last second, well, he's already under there. Whereas if you come from the side, he has to run past all of it, all the guys and get to the other side to get into his hedge or his, or his show or whatever. So I would recommend doing it, especially on a drag screen. Now I know in a drag screen, you're usually not in the middle of the floor. So you wouldn't, wouldn't have maybe as much operating room, but you could also, you know, have your guard start in the middle if you're going to do it and, and, and drag from there. I mean, and, and do the twist from there. And it doesn't have to be from a drag. It can be, you know, throughout the offense, you can have a big man set a back screen and then come over and set the follow-up screen and just use the twist and, and sweat it on the other side. So it's something to play with. I, um, I think it's effective. We use it and we're going to continue to use it and try to take away some of these guys uh, that do a really good job guarding uh, the pick and roll. So I know it's short on the strategy, but I know we went kind of long on the other stuff. So, you know, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Yeah.